Chapter forty eight, part one of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume four. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Chapter forty eight. Succession and characters of the Greek emperors of Constantinople from the time of Heraclius to the Latin conquest. I have now deduced from Trajan to Constantine, from Constantine to Heraclius, the regular series of the Roman emperors, and faithfully exposed the prosperous and adverse fortunes of their reigns. Five centuries of the decline and fall of the empire have already elapsed, but a period of more than eight hundred years still separates me from the term of my labours the taking of Constantinople by the Turks. Should I persevere in the same course, should I observe the same measure, a prolix and slender thread would be spun through many a volume, nor would the patient reader find an adequate reward of instruction or amusement. At every step as we sink deeper in the decline and fall of the Eastern Empire, the annals of each succeeding reign would impose a more ungrateful and melancholy task. These annals must continue to repeat a tedious and uniform tale of weakness and misery. The natural connection of causes and events would be broken by frequent and hasty transitions, and a minute accumulation of circumstances must destroy the light and effect of these general pictures, which compose the use and ornament of a remote history. From the time of Heraclius, the Byzantine theatre is contracted and darkened. The line of empire, which had been defined by the laws of Justinian, and the arms of Belisarius, recedes on all sides from our view. The Roman name, the proper subject of our inquiries, is reduced to a narrow corner of Europe, to the lonely suburbs of Constantinople, and the fate of the Greek Empire has been compared to that of the Rhine, which loses itself in the sands before its waters can mingle with the ocean. The scale of dominion is diminished, to our view, by the distance of time and place. Nor is the loss of external splendour compensated by the nobler gifts of virtue and genius. In the last moments of her decay, Constantinople was doubtless more opulent and populous than Athens at her most flourishing era, when a scanty sum of six thousand talents, or twelve hundred thousand pounds sterling, was possessed by twenty-one thousand male citizens of an adult age. But each of these citizens was a freeman, who dared to assert the liberty of his thoughts, words, and actions, whose person and property were guarded by equal law and who exercised his independent vote in the government of the Republic. Their numbers seemed to be multiplied by the strong and various discriminations of character. Under the shield of freedom, on the wings of emulation of vanity, each Athenian aspired to the level of the national dignity. From this commanding eminence, some chosen spirit soared beyond the reach of a vulgar eye and the chances of superior merit in a great and populous kingdom, as they are proved by experience, would excuse the computation of imaginary millions. The territories of Athens, Sparta, and their allies, 
do not exceed a moderate province of France or England. But after the trophies of Salamis and Plataea, they expand in our fancy to the gigantic size of Asia, which had been trampled under the feet of the victorious Greeks. But the subjects of the Byzantine Empire, who assume and dishonour the names both of Greeks and Romans, present a dead uniformity of abject vices, which are neither softened by the weakness of humanity, nor animated by the vigour of memorable crimes. The freemen of antiquity might repeat with generous enthusiasm the sentence of Homer, that on the first day of his servitude the captive is deprived of one half of his manly virtue. But the poet had only seen the effects of civil or domestic slavery, nor could he foretell that the second moiety of manhood must be annihilated by the spiritual despotism, which shackles not only the actions, but even the thoughts of the prostrate votary. By this double yoke, the Greeks were oppressed under the successors of Heraclius. The tyrant, a law of eternal justice, was degraded by the vices of his subjects. And on the throne, in the camp, in the schools, we search, perhaps with fruitless diligence, the names and characters that may deserve to be rescued from oblivion. Nor are the defects of the subject compensated by the skill and variety of the painters. Of a space of eight hundred years, the first four centuries are overspread with a cloud interrupted by some faint and broken rays of historical light. In the lives of the emperors, from Maurice to Alexius, Basil the Macedonian has alone been the theme of a separate work, and the absence, or loss, or imperfection of contemporary evidence must be poorly supplied by the doubtful authority of more recent compilers. The four last centuries are exempt from the reproach of punery, and with the Comnenian family, the historic muse of Constantinople again revives, but her apparel is gaudy, her motives are without elegance or grace. A succession of priests or courtiers treads in each other's footsteps in the same path of servitude and superstition. Their views are narrow, their judgment is feeble or corrupt and we close the volume of copious barrenness, still ignorant of the causes of events, the characters of the actors, and the manners of the time which they celebrate or deplore. The observation which has been applied to a man may be extended to a whole people, that the energy of the sword is communicated to the pen, and it will be found by experience that the tone of history will rise or fall with the spirit of the age. From these considerations, I should have abandoned without regret the Greek slaves and their servile historians, had I not reflected that the fate of the Byzantine monarchy is passively connected with the most splendid and important revolutions which have changed the state of the world. The space of the lost provinces was immediately replenished with new colonies and rising kingdoms. The active virtues of peace and war deserted from the vanquished to the victorious nations and it is in their origin and conquests, in their religion and government, that we must explore the causes and effects of the decline and fall of the Eastern Empire. Nor will this scope of narrative, the riches and variety of these materials, be incompatible with the unity of design and composition, as, in his daily prayers, 
the Mussulman of Fez or Delhi, still turns his face towards the temper of Mecca, the historian's eyes shall be always fixed on the city of Constantinople. The excursive line may embrace the wilds of Arabia and Tartary, but the circle will be ultimately reduced to the decreasing limit of the Roman monarchy. On this principle I shall now establish the plan of the last two volumes of the present work. The first chapter will contain, in a regular series, the emperors who reigned at Constantinople during a period of six hundred years, from the days of Heraclius to the Latin conquest. A rapid abstract, which may be supported by a general appeal to the order and text of the original historians. In this introduction I shall confine myself to the revolutions of the throne, the succession of families, the personal characters of the Greek princes, the mode of their life and death, the maxims and influence of their domestic government, and the tendency of their reign to accelerate or suspend the downfall of the Eastern Empire. Such a chronological review will serve to illustrate the various argument of the subsequent chapters, and each circumstance of the eventful story of the barbarians will adapt itself in a proper place to the Byzantine annals. The internal state of the empire, and the dangerous heresy of the Paulicelians, which shook the east and enlightened the west, will be the subject of two separate chapters. But these inquiries must be postponed till our further progress shall have opened the view of the world in the ninth and tenth centuries of the Christian era. After this foundation of Byzantine history, the following nations will pass before our eyes, and each will occupy the space to which it may be entitled by greatness or merit, or the degree of connection with the Roman world and the present age. 1. The Franks a general appellation which includes all the barbarians of France, Italy, and Germany, who were united by the sword and sceptre of Charlemagne. The persecution of images and their votaries separated Rome and Italy from the Byzantine throne, and prepared the restoration of the Roman Empire in the West. 2. The Arabs or Saracens Three ample chapters will be devoted to this curious and interesting object. In the first after a picture of the country and its inhabitants, I shall investigate the character of Mohammed, the character, religion, and succession of the Prophet. In the second, I shall lead the Arabs to the conquest of Syria, Egypt, and Africa, the provinces of the Roman Empire. Nor can I check their victorious career till they have overthrown the monarchies of Persia and Spain. In the third, I shall inquire how Constantinople and Europe was saved by the luxury and arts, the division and decay, of the empire of the caliphs. A single chapter will include three the Bulgarians, four Hungarians, and five Russians, who, assaulted by sea or by land, the provinces in the capital. But the last of these, so important in their present greatness, will excite some curiosity in their origin and infancy. 6. The Normans, or rather the private adventurers of that warlike people, who founded a powerful kingdom in Apulia and Sicily, shook the throne of Constantinople, displayed the trophies of chivalry, and almost realized the wonders of romance. 7. The Latins, 
the subjects of the Pope, the nations of the West, who enlisted under the banners of the cross for the recovery or release of the Holy Sepulchre. The Greek emperors were terrified and preserved by the myriads of pilgrims who marched to Jerusalem with Godfrey of Bullion and the peers of Christendom. The second and third crusades trod in the footsteps of the first. Asia and Europe were mingled in a sacred war of two hundred years, and the Christian powers were bravely resisted, and finally expelled by Saladin and the Mamelukes of Egypt. In these memorable crusades, a fleet and army of French and Venetians were diverted from Syria to the Thracian Bosphorus. They assaulted the capital, they subverted the Greek monarchy, and a dynasty of Latin princes was seated near threescore years on the throne of Constantine. 8. The Greeks themselves, during this period of captivity and exile, must be considered as a foreign nation, the enemies, and again the sovereigns of Constantinople. Misfortune had rekindled a spark of national virtue, and the imperial series may be continued with some dignity from their restoration to the Turkish conquest. 9. The Mughals and Tartars By the arms of Zingas and his descendants, the globe was shaken from China to Poland and Greece. The sultans were overthrown, the caliphs fell, and the Caesars trembled on their throne. The victories of Timur suspended above fifty years the final ruin of the Byzantine Empire. 10. I have already noticed the first appearance of the Turks, and the names of the fathers, of Seljuk and Othman, discriminated the two successive dynasties of the nation, which emerged in the eleventh century from the Scythian wilderness. The former established a splendid and potent kingdom, from the banks of Theoxus to Antioch and Nice, and the first crusade was provoked by the violation of Jerusalem and the danger of Constantinople. From an humble origin, the Ottomans arose, the scourge and terror of Christendom. Constantinople was besieged and taken by Mohammed II, and his triumph annihilates the remnant, the image, the title of the Roman Empire in the East. The schism of the Greeks will be connected with their last calamities, and the restoration of learning in the Western world. I shall return from the captivity of the new to the ruins of ancient Rome, and the venerable name, the interesting theme, will shed a ray of glory on the conclusion of my labours. The Emperor Heraclius had punished a tyrant and ascended his throne, and the memory of his reign is perpetrated by the transient conquest and irreparable loss of the eastern provinces. After the death of Eudocia, his first wife, he disobeyed the patriarch and violated the laws by his second marriage with his niece Martinia. And the superstition of the Greeks beheld the judgment of heaven in the diseases of the father and the deformity of his offspring. But the opinion of an illegitimate birth is sufficient to distract the choice and loosen the obedience of the people. The ambition of Martina was quickened by maternal love, and perhaps by the envy of a stepmother, and the aged husband was too feeble to withstand the arts of conjugal allurements. Constantine, his eldest son, enjoyed in a mature age the title of Augustus, 
but the weakness of his constitution required a colleague and a guardian, and he yielded with secret reluctance to the partition of the empire. The senate was summoned to the palace to ratify or attest the association of Heracleonus, the son of Martina. The imposition of the diadem was consecrated by the prayers and blessings of the patriarch. The senators and patricians adored the majesty of the great emperor and the partners of his reign, and as soon as the doors were thrown open, they were held by the tumultuary but important voice of the soldiers. After an interval of five months, the pompous ceremonies which formed the essence of the Byzantine state were celebrated in the cathedral and the hippodrome. The concord of the royal brothers was effectively displayed by the younger leaning on the arm of the elder, and the name of Martina was mingled in the reluctant or venial acclamations of the people. Heraclius survived this association about two years. His last testimony declared his two sons the equal heirs of the Eastern Empire, and commanded them to honour his widow Martina as their mother and their sovereign. When Martina first appeared on the throne with the name and attributes of royalty, she was checked by a firm, though respectful opposition, and the dying embers of freedom were kindled by the breath of a superstitious prejudice. "'We reverence,' exclaimed the voice of a citizen, "'we reverence the mother of our princes. But to these princes alone our obedience is due, and Constantine, the elder emperor, is of an age to sustain, in his own hands, the weight of the sceptre. Your sex is excluded by nature from the toils of government. How could you combat? How could you answer the barbarians who, with a hostile or friendly intentions, may approach the royal city? May heaven avert from the Roman Republic this national disgrace, which would provoke the patience of the slaves of Persia. Martina descended from the throne with indignation, and sought a refuge in the female apartment of the palace. The reign of Constantine III lasted only one hundred and three days. He expired in the thirtieth year of his age, and, although his life had been a long malady, a belief was entertained that poison had been the means, and his cruel stepmother the author of his untimely fate. Martina reaped indeed the harvest of his death, and assumed the government in the name of the surviving emperor. But the incestuous widow of Heraclius was universally abhorred. The jealousy of the people was awakened, and the two orphans whom Constantine had left became the objects of the public care. It was in vain that the son of Martina, who was no more than fifteen years of age, was taught to declare himself the guardian of his nephews, one of whom he had presented at the baptism font. It was in vain that he swore on the wood of the true cross to defend them against all their enemies. On his deathbed, the late emperor had dispatched a trusty servant to arm the troops and provinces of the east in the defence of his helpless children. The eloquence and liberality of Valentine had been successful, and from his camp of Chalcedon, he boldly demanded the punishment of the assassins, and the restoration of the lawful heir. The license of the soldiers, who devoured the grapes and drank the wine of their Asiatic vineyards, provoked the citizens of Constantinople against the domestic authors of their calamities. 
and the dome of St. Sophia re-echoed, not with prayers and hymns, but with the clamours and deprecations of the enraged multitude. At their imperious command, Heracleonis appeared in the pulpit with the eldest of the royal orphans. Constance alone was saluted as Emperor of the Romans, and a crown of gold, which had been taken from the tomb of Heraclius, was placed on his head, with the solemn benediction of the patriarch. But, in the tumult of joy and indignation, the church was pillaged, the sanctuary was polluted by a promiscuous crowd of Jews and barbarians, and the monothelite Pyrrhus, a creature of the empress, after dropping a protestation on the altar, escaped by a prudent flight from the zeal of the Catholics. A more serious and bloody task was reserved for the Senate, who derived a temporary strength from the consent of the soldiers and the people. The spirit of Roman freedom revived the ancient and awful examples of the judgment of tyrants, and the imperial culprits were deposed and condemned as the authors of the death of Constantine. But the severity of the conscript fathers was sustained by the indiscriminate punishment of the innocent and the guilty. Martina and Heracleonis were sentenced to the amputation, the former of her tongue, the latter of his nose, and, after this cruel execution, they consumed the remainder of their days in exile and oblivion. The Greeks, who were capable of reflection, might find some consolation for their servitude, by observing the abuse of power, when it was lodged for a moment in the hands of an aristocracy. We shall imagine ourselves transported five hundred years backwards to the age of the Antonies. If we listen to the oration which Constance II pronounced in the twelfth year of his age before the Byzantine Senate, after returning his thanks for the just punishment of the assassins, who had intercepted the fairest hopes of his father's reign, by the divine providence, said the young emperor, by your righteous decree, Martina and her incestuous progeny have been cast headlong from the throne. Your majesty and wisdom have prevented the Roman state from degenerating into lawless tyranny. I therefore exhort and beseech you to stand forth as the counsellors and judges of the common safety. The senators were gratified by this respectful address and liberal donative of their sovereign. But these servile Greeks were unworthy and regardless of freedom. And in his mind, the lesson of an hour was quickly erased by the prejudices of the age and the habits of despotism. He retained only a jealous fear lest the senate or people should one day invade the right of primogeniture and seat his brother Theodosius on an equal throne. By the imposition of holy orders, the grandson of Heraclius was disqualified from the purple. But this ceremony, which seemed to profane the sacraments of the church, was insufficient to appease the suspicions of the tyrant, and the death of the deacon Theodosius could alone expiate the crimes of his royal birth. His murder was avenged by the imprecations of the people, and the assassin, in the fullness of power, was driven from his capital into voluntary and perpetual exile. Constans embarked for Greece, and, as if he meant to retort the abhorrence which he deserved, he is said, from the imperial galley, to have spit against the walls of his native city. After passing the winter at Athens, 
he sailed to Teratium, in Italy, visited Rome, and concluded a long pilgrimage of disgrace and sacrilegious rapine, by fixing his residence at Syracuse. But if Constance could fly from his people, he could not fly from himself. The remorse of his conscience created a phantom who pursued him by land and sea, by day and night, and the visionary Theodosius, presenting to his lips a cup of blood, said, or seemed to say, Drink, brother, drink, a sure emblem of the aggravation of his guilt, since he had received from the hands of the deacon the mystic cup of the blood of Christ. Odious to himself and to mankind, Constans perished by domestic, perhaps by episcopal treason, in the capital of Sicily. A servant who waited in the bath, after pouring warm water on his head, struck him violently with the vase. He fell, stunned by the blow, and suffocated by the water, and his attendants, who wondered at the tedious delay, beheld with indifference the corpse of their lifeless emperor. The troops of Sicily, invested with the purple and obscure youth, whose inimitable beauty eluded, and it might easily elude, the declining art of the painters and sculptures of the age, Constance had left in the Byzantine palace three sons, the eldest of whom had been clothed in his infancy with the purple. When the father summoned them to attend his person in Sicily, these precious hostages were detained by the Greeks, and a firm refusal informed him that they were the children of the state. The news of his murder was conveyed with almost supernatural speed from Syracuse to Constantinople, and Constantine, the eldest of his sons, inherited his throne without being the heir of the public hatred. His subjects contributed, with zeal and alacrity, to chastise the guilt and presumption of a province which had usurped the rights of the senate and people. The young emperor sailed from the Hellespont with a powerful fleet, and the legions of Rome and Carthage were assembled under his standard in the harbour of Syracuse. The defeat of the Sicilian tyrant was easy, his punishment just, and his beauteous head was exposed in the Hippodrome. But I cannot applaud the clemency of a prince, who, among a crowd of victims, condemned the son of a patrician for deploring with some bitterness the execution of a virtuous father. The youth was castrated. He survived the operation, and the memory of this indecent cruelty is preserved by the elevation of Germanus to the rank of patriarch and saint. After pouring this bloody liberation on his father's tomb, Constantine returned to his capital, and the growth of his young beard during the Sicilian voyage was announced by the familiar surname of Paganatus to the Grecian world. But his reign, like that of his predecessor, was stained with fraternal discord. On his two brothers, Heraclius and Tiberius, he had bestowed the title of Augustus, an empty title, for they continued to languish without trust or power in the solitude of the palace. At their secret instigation, the troops of the Antolian theme, or province, approached the city on the Asiatic side, demanded for the royal brothers the partition or excuse of sovereignty, and supported their seditious claims by a theological argument. They were Christians, they cried, and Orthodox Catholics. The sincere votaries of the holy and undivided trinity, 
since there are three equal persons in heaven, it is reasonable there should be three equal persons upon earth. The emperor invited these learned divines to a friendly conference, in which they might propose their arguments to the senate. They obeyed the summons, but the prospects of their bodies hanging on the gibbet, in the suburb of Galata, reconciled their companions to the unity of the reign of Constantine. He pardoned his brothers, and their names were still pronounced in the public acclamations. But on the repetition or suspicion of a similar offence, the obnoxious princes were deprived of their titles and noses, in the presence of the Catholic bishops, who were assembled at Constantinople, in the sixth general synod. In the close of his life, Paganatus was anxious only to establish the right of primogeniture. The heir of his two sons, Justinian and Heraclius, was offered on the shrine of St. Peter, as a symbol of their spiritual adoption by the Pope. But the elder alone was exalted to the rank of Augustus, and the assurance of the empire. Roman world devolved to Justinian the second, and the name of a triumphant lawgiver was dishonoured by the vices of a boy, who imitated his namesake only in the expensive luxury of building. His passions were strong, his understanding was feeble, and he was intoxicated with a foolish pride that his birth had given him the command of millions, of whom the smallest community would not have chosen him for their local magistrate. His favourite ministers were two beings the least susceptible of human sympathy, a eunuch and a monk. To the one he abandoned the palace, to the other the finances. The former corrected the emperor's mother with a scourge, the latter suspended the insolvent tributaries, with their heads downwards, over a small and smoky fire. Since the days of Commodus and Caracalla, the cruelty of the Roman princes had most commonly been the effect of their fear. But Justinian, who possessed some vigour of character, enjoyed the sufferings and braved the revenge of his subjects about ten years, till the measure was full of his crimes and of their patience. In a dark dungeon, Leontius, a general of reputation, had groaned above three years, with some of the noblest and most deserving of the patricians. He was suddenly drawn forth to assume the government of Greece, and this promotion of an injured man was a mark of the contempt rather than of the confidence of his prince. As he was followed to the port by the kind offices of his friends, Leontius observed with a sigh that he was a victim adorned for sacrifice, and that inevitable death would pursue his footsteps. They ventured to reply that glory and empire might be the recompense of a generous resolution, that every order of man abhorred the reign of a monster, and that the hands of two hundred thousand patriots expected only the voice of a leader. The night was chosen for their deliverance, and in the first effort of the conspirators the prefect was slain, and the prisons were forced open. The emissaries of Leontius proclaimed in every street, Christians to St. Sophia, and the seasonable text of the patriarch, This is to defy the Lord, was the prelude of an inflammatory sermon. From the church the people adjourned to the Hippodrome. Justinian, in whose cause not a sword had been drawn, 
was dragged before these tumultuary judges, and their clamours demanded the instant death of a tyrant. But Leontius, who was already clothed with the purple, cast an eye of pity on the prostrate son of his own benefactor, and of so many emperors. The life of Justinian was spared. The amputation of his nose, perhaps of his tongue, was imperfectly performed. The happy flexibility of the Greek language could impose the name of Rhinotimetus, and the mutated tyrant was banished to Chirosne in Crim Tartary, a lonely settlement where corn, wine, and oil were imported as foreign luxuries. On the edge of the Scythian wilderness, Justinian still cherished the pride of his birth and the hope of his restoration. After three years' exile he received the pleasing intelligence that his injury was avenged by a second revolution, and that Leontius, in his turn, had been dethroned and mutilated by the rebel Apsimar, who assumed the more respectable name of Tiberius. But the claim of lineal succession was still formidable to a plebeian usurper, and his jealousy was stimulated by the complaints and charges of the Chrysanites who beheld the vices of the tyrant in the spirit of the exile. With a band of followers, attached to his person by a common hope or common despair, Justinian fled from the inhospitable shore to the horde of the Shazars, who pitched their tents between the Tanais and Borysthianus. The Khan entertained with pity and respect the royal suppliant. Phanagoria, once an opulent city, on the Asiatic side of the Lake Moetus, was assigned for his residence, and every Roman prejudice was stifled in his marriage with the sister of the barbarian, who seems, however, from the name of Theodora, to have received the sacrament of baptism. But the faithless Shazar was soon tempted by the gold of Constantinople, and had not the design been revealed by the conjugal love of Theodora, her husband must have been assassinated or betrayed into the power of his enemies. After strangling, with his own hands, the two emissaries of the Khan, Justinian sent back his wife to her brother, and embarked on the Euxine in search of new and more faithful allies. His vessel was assaulted by a violent tempest, and one of his pious companions advised him to deserve the mercy of God by a vow of general forgiveness if he should be restored to the throne. "'Of forgiveness,' replied the intrepid tyrant, "'may I perish this instant! "'May I perish this instant! "'May the Almighty whelm me in the waves "'if I consent to spare a single head of my enemies!' He survived this impious menace, sailed into the mouth of the Danube, trusted his person in the royal village of the Bulgarians, and purchased the aid of Tobelus, a pagan conqueror, by the promise of his daughter, and of a fair partition of the treasures of the empire. The Bulgarian kingdom extended to the confines of Thrace, and the two princes besieged Constantinople, at the head of fifteen thousand horse. Epsimar was dismayed by the sudden and hostile apparition of his rival, whose head had been promised by the Shazar, and of whose evasion he was yet ignorant. After an absence of ten years, the crimes of Justinian were faintly remembered, 
and the birth and misfortunes of this hereditary sovereign excited the pity of the multitude, ever discontent with the ruling powers, and by the active diligence of his adherents, he was introduced into the city and palace of Constantine. End of chapter 48, part 1